Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Hebrews 13, the writer says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison. What does that look like? What does that mean? Remember them as though you were in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, I wonder if you'd agree with me. Money is one of the things that interests us the most. (coughs) Excuse me. Money is one of the things that interests us the most and which we actually speak about the least. Or at least, I mean, we speak about it the least in polite company, don't we, in public? But we're always thinking about it in private, aren't we? We're talking about it in private. So it's the middle of the month at the minute, isn't it? 14th of August. Payday is a few weeks away for most of us. And we're gathering together this evening, aren't we? Fully conscious, each of us, of what is going on in our own individual private financial worlds. We all know whether we feel we have enough money or not enough money. Some of us are wondering how we're going to pay that next bill. And yet, of course, something that individually we all think so much about, we rarely speak about it together. And if we do speak about it together, there are certain social norms that we just tend to abide by, aren't there? I'm guessing that at Trinity, nobody has ever asked you over coffee, so how much are you on? At least I hope they've never done that to you. How much extra did you get with that new promotion at work? No, we're reserved, aren't we? Polite. But friends, when we bring that deep personal interest that we all have in money and our shared social reserve about speaking about money, when we bring both of those attitudes, our, our interest in it and our reserve about it, when we bring both those attitudes to the Bible, we find that God shares only one of those attitudes with us. God is deeply interested in our money and what we do with it, and he is not remotely interested in keeping quiet about it. All over the pages of the Bible, God reveals that money is the very stuff of life. Money does things. Money does things. See, if you were to open the book of Proverbs... And try and read all the way through Proverbs from start to end and ask yourself, what does money actually do? 
Okay, here's a summary of the book of Proverbs of things that money does. Poverty can pounce like a bandit. Wealth can protect people. Wages can bring life. Income can bring punishment. Wages can deceive. Money can dwindle and money can grow. In the book of Proverbs, riches, coins, they're not inanimate objects like stuffed under a mattress just lying there. In the book of Proverbs, money can sprout wings and fly like an eagle. Money does things. Money can set you free or money can make you a slave. Money can be what God uses to bring someone to Christ. Money can be what keeps someone out of Christ's kingdom forever. And in a way, in these four sermons on money that we're we're looking at it. I just simply want to let the Bible take the layers off money and let money show us our own hearts. Because money does that, doesn't it? It shows us our loves, our passions, our treasures like nothing else. Second sermon this evening is contentment. Contentment. That, that ability, that spiritual discipline to say, I have enough. I have enough. I'm full. I'm fine. No more required thanks. We're strange creatures, aren't we, with money? We we human beings are very odd. Somebody has said we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to please people we don't like. Especially at Christmas time, it's what we do, isn't it? And yet, contentment is... Something that this very passage, we're going to look at it together this evening. This very passage says, stop stop doing that. Stop buying things you don't need with money you you don't have to please people you don't like. So how how do you get there? How how, how do you get contentment? Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, has a lovely little book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a lovely title because Christian contentment is a rare jewel, isn't it? And Jeremiah Burroughs says there are two ways to have enough. You can reach contentment in two ways. You you can bring your possessions up to the level of your desire. So you, you desire all these things. And if you want to be content, you can get all the things that you desire. But the other way to be content is to bring your desires down to the level of your possessions. This, Lord, this is what you've given me. And so this, Lord, is what I desire. So how do we get there? How do we do do that? I want to show you three things from these five verses this evening about contentment. Number one, number one, contentment flows from the worship of God. Contentment flows from the worship of God. The worship of God is the source of contentment. Cut off worship of God. Remove loving God from the equation and contentment will always remain out of grasp. Do you notice the the number of different commands in this passage that were being given here? All in quick succession. The, The imperatives come quickly, don't they? Love each other. Be hospitable. Remember the suffering of those imprisoned. Honor marriage. Flee sexual immorality and adultery. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content. Verse 7, remember your leaders. And so it goes on and on. All these commands. 
Many of you will know that this letter to the Hebrews, we're actually going to begin studying it in a couple of weeks in our, in our evening worship. This letter to the Hebrews is a tightly argued letter with very deliberate theological points being made all the way through it. The work of the Lord Jesus as the eternal son, the writer says, Jesus is like a new Moses. He's like a new Joshua. He's like a new high priest. And now here at the end, chapter 13, there's all these, these quick-fire rapid succession commands. Is that the writer saying, look, 12 chapters, I've given you all this lofty theology, and by the way, there's all this pile of other stuff that you're meant to be doing. Don't forget all these other things, the usual things that you get, love and good works and all of that. Are, are these what one commentator has called the leftovers? After you've done all the heavy-duty theology, here's what's left. Well, no. The answer is no. And here's why. Look at chapter 12, verse 28. Chapter 12, verse 28. Right right before our passage this evening. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Worship God acceptably. Worship God with reverence and awe. In other words, get worship right. Because there are certain things God hates and cannot tolerate. And which the burning purity of his holy love will consume. So how do you do that at the end of chapter 12? How do you worship God acceptably with reverence and awe? Answer, chapter 13. Chapter 13. Friends, chapter 13 is your liturgy for life. Chapter 13 is your order of service. You've got this in front of you, haven't you? This little piece of paper. This comes and goes every week. It is a passing liturgy. But chapter 13 is a liturgy you you take. We, We go out into the world with this branded onto our hearts and into our minds, don't we? This is not a random collection of loose ends tagged on to the end of the letter because the writer has to end somehow. These are the vital essentials of Christian worship. So much so that if we do not have them, the writer says, you are left facing a God who is a consuming fire. You see the logic of it? And for us this evening, the challenge is verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. See, just look at verse 5 and remember that this is about worship. So turn verse 5 into the opposite of what it says to see the point of what the writer's saying. Okay, turn verse 5 into the opposite. Fill your life with the love of money and harbor a low burn simmering constant discontentment with what you have do that the writer is saying and you are not worshiping god truly whatever you're doing on a sunday keep your life free from that or you are not adoring him see i think when we see that this is all about worship it's so strong isn't it Worship is what we're doing here together this evening, isn't it? It's what, we, it's what we did in these lovely songs that we've sung together. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. 
Almighty, victorious, your great name we praise. Is that worship? Well, yes, of course it is, partly, isn't it? But friends, what this is saying to us is that we can sing all we want. We can look for the best worship service in the world. We can seek out the best style of worship that we love. But where there are Sunday words, but Monday to Saturday discontentment, do you see what the writer is saying? We are not worshiping God acceptably. Monday to Saturday greed and Sunday worship is not worship. God never pulls his punches with us, does he? he? He loves us too much and his glory and holiness are too great for that. We live easily, don't we, with facade and pretense and politeness and turning a blind eye to things, but God never does. Remember what I told the kids this morning, those verses from Isaiah? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I wonder if any of you looked it up over lunchtime. Isaiah chapter 1. I think you'll be amazed to read this. God says to his people, Isaiah chapter 1, Stop bringing your meaningless offerings to me. Amazing, isn't it? Imagine God telling his people to stop coming to church. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. I will stop my ears. I will not listen. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. That is acceptable worship, Isaiah chapter 1. And isn't it just the same as Hebrews chapter 13? With one addition. Learn to be content. Learn to be content. Remember Paul's words in Philippians, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Learned to be content. I think that word is interesting, isn't it? Do you find contentment hard this evening? If we're honest, we all do, don't we? Anybody prepared to be remotely honest will say we find it hard. We are not born content. We're we're born the exact opposite, aren't we? We are naturally discontent and we have to learn it. Do you notice the main verb in chapter 5? Keep. Keep your life free from the love of money. It's like like keeping your garden free from weeds. I don't know if you've got a big garden or a small garden. You weed it, you stand back and look at it proudly and two weeks later, they're back. You're doing it all over again. You're never done. Some of us in life, we're starters, aren't we? We're not finishers. We have great ideas and big projects. We get going, and then the garden is a mess. If you're not active in keeping the love of money at bay, the love of money will keep you. The writer says, you want to learn how to keep your life free, you start here with worship. We learn that loving money more than God is actually a form of hating God. Loving money more than being content with what we have is a profound form of ingratitude. Loving money more than others is a form of hating others. You want more in life? The writer says, look what God has already given. Look what is already in the bank or in your home or on the walls. And learn to spot when a love of money is taking over your life. 
Here's a second way to see it. Number two, number two, contentment treasures the promises of God. Contentment flows from the worship of God. Number two, contentment treasures the promises of God. See, the, the, the passage, verse 5, gives us a reason, doesn't it, for keeping the love of money at bay. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But what, what we most want in life is relationship, isn't it? It's, it's at the heart of absolutely everything. End of story, what we most want is relationship. And money goes wrong when we put money before relationship. Before relationship with God and relationship with others. I remember years ago hearing a pastor who was quite experienced in pastoral life in many different ways. He said this, he said, in all my years of pastoral ministry, he said, I have never yet had a young woman come into my office and say to me, Pastor, I am so messed up. I'm all over the place because my dad used to drop me off at school in this old beat-up Ford that kept breaking down. And oh, the shame of it, the embarrassment of it. I've never recovered from that. He said, I've never yet met a woman messed up by that. But, he said, but I have met plenty of young women who are all over the place because their dad had enough money to pay for the whole school to buy a brand new car if they wanted Enough money to send the whole school on a skiing trip, but he never had enough time to spend with them. We often use money, don't we, to cover over lack of relationship. But in fact, it's relationship that breeds contentment, isn't it? When you have somebody's attention, somebody's devotion, someone's love, when you have that, contentment grows in your heart. And that's what the writer is saying, isn't he, in verse 5. Friend, you and I have the strongest, most precious, most long-lasting, most unbreakable relationship of all. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's one of the, one of the worst possible things, isn't it, about, about growing old, that people leave and you lose and they do not return. Live long enough and we will be forsaken by those closest to us as death claims them and takes them. Or you will do that to others who love you. But you and I have someone with us, the writer is saying. Someone with us in life and someone who will be with us there in death who will never leave. Who will hold us through death and who we will meet and be with on the other side of death. We sing it sometimes, don't we? That soul who on Jesus has leaned for repose, he'll never, no, never forsake to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. There's nothing more precious than that, friends, in all the world. Do you know when the day comes that Bill Gates dies, And all the obituaries will be written and everybody will go through them just sifting the information. Everybody will be looking for just one line of information as we read, won't we? What did he leave? How much did he leave? How much is left? And there is actually only one answer, isn't there, in that obituary? When 
the billionaire dies, how much do they leave? Everything. Absolutely everything. One day their money will leave them. Bill Gates' money will be left behind. His money will forsake him. And like you and I, and the richest person in the world and the poorest person in the world, we will all face the God of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. We will all face him. And the only thing that counts, the only thing that matters will be having Christ at your side or not. Oh, contentment treasures the promises of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Yes, you do not have X. Yes, you do not have Y. But you are not alone. Those beautiful verses at the end of Romans 8, they teach us, don't they, that trouble and hardship and famine and nakedness and sword might very well be our lot in life. Sword might even separate your head from your body. And you cannot be separated from Christ. You cannot. Do you know, Augustine, the great church father, he said, He who has him to whom all things belong has all things. He who has him to whom all things belong has all things. It's an amazing thing, that kind of shared privilege, isn't it? Years ago, we went as a family, we went away for one night to stay with friends. And these friends were fabulously wealthy. And we stayed for one night in their home. The kind of night where you're saying to your children, Shh, don't touch or don't say anything, don't ask how much money they've got. It's that kind of like obvious, staggering beauty of the world that we were in. And for one night, one night only, what was theirs was ours because we were in relationship to them. And all that was theirs was ours. Come in, they said. Share it. Come and be with us. This is yours. And we loved it. Christ is the king of the universe, the writer is saying, and he is yours. I love these words of John Wesley. I've, I know I've said them to you before. Listen to this. John Wesley said this. I was in the robe chamber adjoining to the house of lords when the king put on his robes his brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care i thought is this all the world can give even to a king all the grandeur it can afford a blanket of ermine around his shoulder so heavy and cumbersome that he can scarcely move under it a huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold glittering stone upon his head alas what a bauble is human greatness And this, even this, will not endure. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued. Number three, finally to finish, contentment thrives among the people of God. Contentment thrives among the people of God. It flows from the worship of God. It treasures the promises of God. And among God's people, in relationship to each other, contentment thrives. I wonder if you noticed these five verses that we read together, six verses, they are all about relationships, aren't they? And money itself is described in relational terms. 
You notice we're not told to keep our life free from money. That's impossible, isn't it? You can't keep your life free from money. There's bills to pay, mouths to feed. There's good things to enjoy and benefit from. No, keep your lives free from the love of money. Keep your life free from a certain kind of relationship to money. And here's how you do it, the writer is saying. Replace that kind of love towards money. Replace it with another kind of love. Love something else more than money. And here's what he's saying to love. Love one another. Love your brother. Love your sister. Love the people of God more than money. Just put your eyes going through those five verses. Look at the crisscrossing, multi-layered network of relationships. And if you put your life into loving others like this, well, the writer is saying, maybe there's not actually going to be too much money left to spend on yourself. You will find you learn contentment this way. Look at the command in verse, verse 1. It's not just let love continue. Let brotherly love Love each other as brothers. We, we are a family. I have two brothers. And I love my human brothers deeply. And they know it. They can tell that. Or most of the time they can tell that at least. You have family and siblings. And we, we know what it is like for people who are that, that blood relation to us. You will do anything for them. The writer is saying you've entered a room like that of new blood relationships. Water of baptism is thicker than blood. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, for brotherly love out there in the natural family to be applied to us in Christ's family. You should know that and feel that from me, and I should know that and feel that from you. Let brotherly love continue. Look at verse 2. We all wonder what verse 2 means, don't we? And here's the thing, I really don't know. I really don't know what verse 2 means. Some have entertained angels unawares. I think the writer is saying, look, if you're interested in the supernatural, the realm of angels, some, some people really are interested in angels, and angels are a big thing in the, the letter to the Hebrews. If you're interested in angels, stop gazing up at the sky and get out of church and get home and open your cupboards and get some of the neighbors around who you've never met and some of the people from your church family you've never spoken to. What's the worst that could happen if you do that? And who knows, maybe you'll be entertaining angels unawares. What about verse 3? So beautiful, isn't it? Remember those who are in prison Remember them as though you were in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. It's a way of saying, if you hear about somebody's bodily suffering, imagine if that was you. You you too have a body that bleeds and hurts and weeps. Oh yes, we say we we get the Barnabas prayer fund news. We, We pray for folks like that now and again. The writer says, no, what are you actually doing about it? It's why in our church family life we have regular opportunities for giving, giving to organizations like the Barnabas Fund. It's why we have a benevolent fund. Because we have bodies. Christ's people have bodies. So striking, isn't it, that verse 5, our verse, keep your life free from the love of money, follows right on the heels of verse 4. 
Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What's the connection between sex and money? It's because the writer knows that God's people often say, we are for marriage, we are against adultery, verse 4. But we quite happily tolerate greed, verse 5. No, says the writer, both of those things are about love of others, aren't they? Bed hopping is lust, not love. It doesn't put the needs and hopes and feelings and dreams of others first. And greed is discontentment, not love, isn't it? It does not put the needs of others first. Look at verse 16 of chapter 13. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It is all worship, isn't it? Quite simply, love other people more and you will love your money less. It's as simple as that. Love others more and the love of money in your own heart will begin to dwindle. You know, you know I heard a lovely phrase a while ago. I heard, I heard somebody say that Christian people, Christian people, we should be the advertising agency's nightmare. Lovely, isn't it? Well, what's the point of advertising? Yes, it's to get you to buy. The point of it is to get you to part with your cash in the end. But how does advertising work? It gets you from A to B by sowing discontentment in your life. Look at that product. My life is not great without that. Look how clean and cool and tidy and neat and perfect and polished. And the writer says, yes, Christian people look at those things and look at them differently. Whatever the product, we look at it and smile. Sometimes it's right to buy, yes. But here is the test. When I don't buy or can't buy, I'm not upset. I'm not phased. I'm not thrown. I haven't got a hole in my life that is just missing that latest thing. You know, this week I watched Steve Jobs. I saw the most amazing video online from, about, I don't know when it was, 19, uh, early 80s or something. Steve Jobs of Apple. Talk, it's a six-minute video talking about Apple's marketing strategy. And you know it's old because he's standing in front of these huge computer monitors behind him uh, talking about Apple. And he says this, he said, we're going to totally change the way that we market Apple products because he said, we've realized we've been getting it wrong. We talk about the product, not the need and not the desire. And the thing I hadn't realized is that Apple have explicitly based their marketing strategy on Nike's marketing strategy. So Steve Jobs says in this video, he says, what do Nike do in their advertising? He says, all, all Nike do is sell shoes. That's all they are, selling a product, clothes, shoes. But what is Nike's advertising? What do they do? They don't talk about shoes or clothes. They talk about great athletes. We're going to honor great athletes, Nike says. And along comes the consumer and says, I love that. I too want to be like them. I want to honor them. And Steve Jobs says, we're going to take that and we're going to change it. In Apple, we're going to say, we're going to honor people who think differently. We're going to honor great thinkers. And he shows this short video clip of people like Einstein and people who said you can get to the moon when people laughed at them and said you'll never be able to do it. And the tagline is think different. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? 
marketing puts in front of us great people and says, if you get this, you will be like them. Do you want to be like them? Look at these people. What does the writer to the Hebrews do in verse 6? Be content. Why? Who should you look at? Not people. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. You know the people you look at in Nike and Apple, the great heroes, you will never meet them, never touch them, never come close to them. They do not know your name. But the Lord of heaven and earth stoops down to you and to me, holds out his hand and picks us up and puts his arms around us, his everlasting arms and shields and keeps and holds The Lord is my helper. Oh, friends, may God himself make us like this, content with what we have, worshiping him, treasuring his promises, loving his people. Do those things and contentment will grow in our hearts. The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a poor cottager He says this, the poor cottager broke a piece of bread. She filled a glass with cold water. And as she did so, she asked, what, all this and Jesus Christ too? All of this, God and Christ? Oh, there are no limits to your love for me. So may it be. Amen.